A curator is someone who makes meaning, who works closely with an artist if the artist happens to be living, sometimes with many artists, sometimes with material that's really diverse chronologically, to make meaning for audiences, in a nutshell. Welcome to episode 81 of Talking with Painters. I'm Maria Stoljar and this is the podcast where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. You might know the last episode I spoke with Ben Quilty just before the excellent exhibition Quilty opened at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And today I'm excited to bring you my conversation with the woman who brought that show together, curator Lisa Slade. Lisa's the Assistant Director of Artistic Programs at the Art Gallery of South Australia and she's curated several shows of Ben's work as well as shows of many other artists. She's known Ben for over 20 years and they've become friends over that time so not only are you going to hear how the show came together and what a curator does but she talks about Ben and his life from the perspective of someone who knows him well. All the works we talk about are on the website, talkingwithpainters.com, but I strongly recommend you go and see the show if you can. It is free and it's on until the 2nd of February, 2020. I started my conversation with Lisa by asking how she and Ben first crossed paths. We met here at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It was in the late 1990s. I was a teacher at the time working in Western Sydney. He was living in southwestern Sydney. We were both invited in to be part of a program where kids from Western Sydney, southwestern Sydney, northwestern Sydney were all part of a kind of program here at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and we were invited in to be speakers. And we met because we got on like a house on fire. And also we we listened to each other. Like, you know, we had over a number of days, we had the opportunity to hear each other talk about our practice and what we do. And it was a wonderful way of getting to know somebody. I could see the way that the kids in the space were responding to Ben. And I thought, this is very interesting. Here we have an opportunity in a moment. This was, um, Ben was in his 20s, I think, at this stage, early 20s. So uh, it was, it was very, he was very young and I wasn't much older. And it was really a way of, it was the door, if you like, into the beginning of a curatorial and artistic relationship that was about um, similar interests, similar concerns and being a, a critical ear Mm. Uh, for each other's practice. And you've become friends since then, obviously. Yeah, we've become friends, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah over those decades. Yeah. It's interesting that you've um, met through children because I, I always feel like when I've, I've seen videos on YouTube and yeah. Ben is like amazing with kids. He's an amazing communicator. He understands, he's incredibly, he has great empathy, as you know, and so he does that thing that not many people do, which he, he works out. He looks very closely at his audience, at his viewer or the person he's speaking to, and he works out who they are and where they're at and what they're thinking, and he has the capacity to uh, shape, his, shape his conversation, I suppose, to fit that particular person and he's the way he connects with people is quite exemplary. Yeah, and I think it and also shows somebody who's thought out uh, a position on things. You That's know. true and he yeah. puts that down to debating. So his parents, one thing they had to do, all three Quilty boys was debating and the uh, the kitchen table became, you know, the dinner table really became the site at which the debating was honed. Of course they were debating at school, the Quilty boys, but they were also bringing their debating skills home and around the, uh, the dinner table each night there'd be plenty of debates. Oh right, so that's where it originated mm-hmm. from. Well can you tell me a little bit um, about your work because, Mm. um, you know, 
I don't know a lot about curating and there's okay. probably a lot of my listeners don't either, even though we are interested in art. Yeah. That's uh, sort of another side of things, sure. isn't it? Sure. Well, it's a, a word that's often, uh, I think, probably misused these days. People talk about all sorts of curators. There was a really interesting moment a number of years ago and it was for one of, I saw a poster for one of the Vivid Festivals and it was a poster of Laurie Anderson and Lou Reed and they were, so it was a kind of bus shelter poster. Oh, yeah. And it had Laurie Anderson, Lou Reed, curators written along the bottom of that. Rather than saying, you know, performance artist, musician, the word curators had been thrown in because they were curating the Vivid Festival that year. And I thought, I am witness to a shift in the way in which the curatorial kind of discipline, if you like, or the idea of curating is being uh, being held by the community, being understood by the community. So the word curator has changed meaning over time since its inception, probably in about the 15th century. It's a word that shares its origin with a few other words. So cura, meaning to care for something or to cure something. Mm. But it, that etymology, that root of the word is also the root of the word curiosity. So the way oh, I explain it to my students is that a curator has two primary obligations. The first one is to care. So back to that cura idea, care for a collection, care for the artists, care for the audiences. And the other part of their responsibility is to incite or evoke curiosity in their audiences. So a curator is someone who makes meaning, who works closely with an artist if the artist happens to be living, sometimes with many artists, sometimes with material that's really diverse chronologically, to make meaning for audiences in a nutshell. Right. And so with this show, mm-hmm. with this exhibition, mm-hmm. what were the seeds of that sort of meaning? Yeah, I think for Ben's practice, one of the abiding themes has been this interrogation of identity, an interrogation of place. And in doing that, he interrogates himself mm-hmm. and the kind of conundrum of Australian identity. That that runs from the Tiranas all the way through to the recent works. So that's the thread. Now, that doesn't mean that every painting you look at kind of hits you over the head with that, but that's the kind of hopefully subtle, nuanced thread that runs through the exhibition. Then within that broader framework or context, there are these other themes, and they are to do with the idea of trauma, the idea of portraiture, the idea of history, and the idea of painting. I mean, painting itself has got to be the subject of a show. And of course... It is, he is a painter and it is, and, and they're not so many, they're, they're a bit few and far between these days, it is an exhibition of painting. Yeah. It is a celebration of paint. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I, you know, I was looking at the works today and um, you just cannot get a sense of what those works are yeah. if you're looking at them online. Yeah, that's Particularly, right. I was looking at like Kandahar. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't seen that before. Yeah. And when I spoke to Ben about it yesterday... And I had only seen it in, you know, in printed in reproduction. Yeah, and it flattens. It totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. There's the t- I mean, obviously, you know, you can't get sense of that texture, but even the colours. Yeah, but you also don't know what's painted and what's not. So one of the things that Ben does so beautifully, it's not just his wielding of paint, it's when he decides not to wield paint. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's the play between the areas that he's painting and the areas that he's choosing not to paint yeah. when the canvas itself is speaking. And that's one of the things that I think works really well with Kandahar. And you're right, a reproduction won't give you that sense. No, that's right. Actually, talking about areas that aren't painted, um, a great example of that is the Margaret Olley portrait. Yeah. But we were talking about it yesterday. <laughs> he did, did not want that. He did not we want had, that in the exhibition. We had a little moment over that one. 
<laughs> but he gave in. Yeah, pretty much. He <laughs> gave in pretty he quickly. He said that you, were, you, you made good sense with your reasons, <laughs> but can you say why you Well, think? it goes back to your point. The reason that I was so adamant that it needed to be in was because, yeah, sure, it's you know, it's a touchstone for his work. It's not a work that's particularly indicative of his abiding concerns, which is why he didn't want it in. Mm. He felt like it had been overexposed. And I said, hang on a minute. So many people have seen this work through reproduction only. And it is, as you say, it's the it's the negative space, it's the white canvas that speaks so beautifully in that. And you have to see those daubs of paint in the flesh to actually really appreciate that painting. Definitely. So that's why it was easy for me to convince him, I think, because mm. it really was about experiencing that work not through reproduction, which is how it's broadly known, I would argue, in Australia. Not so much for Sydney Siders because it's been hanging in the Art Gallery of New South Wales, but it really hasn't been seen more broadly than here. Yeah, that's true. So it was an opportunity to actually really embrace the act of painting and how with just a few marks Mm. you can conjure a likeness like no other. I know, it's incredible. And it's great for painters to be able to see that close yeah, up. Agreed. Um, even a video of it doesn't show it to you really very yeah. well. Um, uh, now, talking about paint, mm. one thing I didn't get around to talking to Ben about was the raw shark paintings. Sure. And that's all about paint. Yeah. I mean, there are, the themes are pretty horrific as well in a lot of those. Yeah. Um, but um, can you just explain uh, what a raw shark painting sure, is? Sure, sure. Well, The Rorschach is named after Herman Rorschach, who in around the 1920s, following war, came up with an idea of the ink blot test. And many of your listeners will have heard of this. And it's essentially that very simple idea of squishing ink within a piece of folded paper and creating a a pattern or a shape. Rorschach would then take that pattern or shape, which is usually just made with one colour on a piece of paper, and show it to those who had been um, afflicted through with, you know, paranoia and neuroses after conflict or during conflict. And he'd show it to his the people that he was working with and he'd say, well, what is this? So he used it as a diagnostic tool. What does this look like? What can you tell me about this? And he create, created a kind of taxonomy, if you like, of being able to interpret these various ink blots as a way of divining somebody's mental health. Mm. Isn't it interesting that... 100 years later, almost 100 years later, Ben takes the ink blot and instead of using ink and a piece of paper, uses, you know, swathes of oil paint and canvas and then invites us in a way to make our own interpretations because he he makes us part of the experience of the work. He renders us complicit and in doing that I think there's a kind of metaphoric level happening there where we're physically making sense of the image. And, you know, sometimes you will have experienced, particularly with the Bedford Downs work, you've got to stand back. Yeah. A lot of people can't see the skulls in that work. I've worked out through just the little kind of vox pops that I've done that probably about a third of the people who stand in front of that can't actually see it. When you take a photograph of it or hold your your phone up to it, you can see it. Yeah, it resolves. It? So it's, it's a classic kind of anamorphic image really. So I think one of the the points here is that Ben makes us complicit in making meaning and in doing that, the broader metaphor is that we are all complicit in this history. We are all complicit in this identity making and that goes back to that key theme for the exhibition. Yeah, and the sort of identity we're talking about is... um well, the themes we're talking mm. about are, are those uh, issues which relate to Aboriginal uh, history. Yeah, uh, well, and, but I think I don't think it is about Aboriginal history. I actually think it's Australian history. Yeah. Uh, so in the case of the, the Bedford Downs work, Ben 
after studying at Monash University Aboriginal Studies, he went home one day and put his name into a search engine with the word, the word his name Quilty, into a search engine with the word massacre. And the Bedford Downs massacre that occurred in the early part of the 20th century came up. Mm. And the Bedford Downs massacre is the story in which a watercourse was poisoned, which led to the death of many Gidja people by a farmer as a form of retribution because those Gidja men and women had taken some cattle. Now, the person who owned that cattle station, his name was Quilty. So I think Ben would say, and I don't want to speak for him, but he would say, and certainly my perspective is that this this is not about Aboriginal history. This is actually about collective history. Of course, yeah. This is about the the things that have happened uh, in this country together, not not in uh, separation. I'm just jumping in here to let you know that in this second half of the interview, you're going to notice a change in audio quality. And that was because my main recorder had a technical issue and I had to change to my backup recorder. So from here on, it's going to sound a little like we're in a larger room. But in this half of the interview, Lisa has some fascinating insights into the exhibition and why she describes Ben as an unlikely activist. And can you tell me a bit, that, that room that holds those mm. four Rorschach landscapes yeah. is very powerful is and, very and powerful. it's got to do partly with the choice of colour that you've used yeah. for the walls. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about those, yeah. those considerations? So that back to the question of what does a curator do, most curators are, and I think they should always be, very audience-focused. So it's not just about putting the pictures on the wall. Mm. It's actually about the journey, the cognitive journey, the emotional journey, the intellectual journey that the viewer will have. And part of the way that we craft that journey is actually through the use of colour, through the use of lighting, through the use of furnishings, etc. In the case of Quilty, I wanted to use two colours predominantly. Here at the Art Gallery, they've introduced two other colours, and in Queensland, they introduced another colour. In Adelaide, we only used two colours, and you probably remember one was a lilac colour and the other colour was a a more kind of true purple. And that true purple is Diocletian's purple, which is a a purple that is connected all the way back to, I think, as early as the 11th century. Purple was one of the most valued colours because it was so incredibly expensive and difficult to produce. Mm. The way that purple was made for probably 500 years or so was by crushing shellfish. And you probably, I guess it would be a variant on squid ink, you know, but but it required in this instance, this particular purple came from a particular shell that was then tens of thousands of of shells needed to be crushed to create just an an, an ounce of Diocletian's purple. It's known as the colour of grief. So it's a colour that's been very associated with all sorts of rituals, cross-culturally actually. Mm. So I wanted to use that colour because yeah. it's a colour that is that speaks to this idea of the history of colour and the colour is not just a kind of neutral, objective thing. The colour has a history and colour has a, a very kind of um, palpable, visceral history, which makes mm. sense in terms of Ben's work. The lilac colour was also the lilac or the mauve, seemingly kind of, on, on the one hand, quaint colours. Lavender. Yeah, yeah. You know, you might think of your grandmother. But lavender... And lilac, all of those colours recur time and time again in Ben's painting. And it struck me, and I write about this in my essay, that those colours are the colour of a bruise a few days in. 
You know, they're a kind of bruised colour. They're quite a kind of physical colour, those colours. So um, I wanted to use both of those colours for those two reasons. Mm. And then the art gallery have introduced this phenomenally toxic yellow. (laughs) kind of oscillates between yellow and green. I think it's great. It's great, isn't it? It works really, really well. It's like a warning. Yes. And once again, you know, it's not it's not like choosing something to match your couch where you think, mm. oh, what will work? It's actually about what do we need to say with this choice of colour? How will it shift the mood? How does it speak to the work? You couldn't switch around the yellow with the purple. It would not have worked, no. for instance. Well, that painting, that The Last Supper, that is on mm. that wall, and it's one of the last paintings we see as yeah. we leave, yeah. um, together with The Last Supper 2017, which is phenomenal, and that's one that's been acquired by the gallery. Yeah. Um, but the, the Last Supper with, you know, this, this sort of, um, it's like a... Could you describe it? <laughs> well, it's a bit like a raw shark, to be honest. You know, you could fold it in half and it would seem it's quite symmetrical. It's not physically a raw shark at all, but he's left a whole section of table. The table of the Last Supper is white mm. and it runs perspectively through the painting. So there's foreshortening, so you get the table. And then around the table are a series of kind of quasi-pseudo-figurative references. So, yeah. so a couple of people and then a whole lot of other kind of decaying collapsing forms so it's like this gathering this momentous gathering and of course you can't call something the last supper without invoking not only biblical references but a whole art history of references back to that biblical history so all of those things are played out Mm. the last supper there's also a sense of kind of doom, if you like, that it will be the last gathering, a sort of uh, Armageddon, if you like. Mm. And that particular Last Supper painting was painted just after the uh, Donald Trump was elected. Yes, and, and he features in the background. He does, he yeah, does. Yeah. Perhaps well, not so obviously, except that once you know it's him, you can yeah. see him. I think it's one of those scenarios, yeah, isn't right. it? Well, um, yeah, well, I mean, you talk about anxiety. Well, there's that sense of anxiety mm. with those paintings. But what I found interesting was that, um, well, I feel anyway that Ben is all about emotion. Yeah. And I think I think you were saying that each, correct me if I'm wrong, each room is designed to have its own theme but also its own emotion. Yeah. Is that yeah, what a curator would look for yes, generally? Yes, but at the same time, as a curator, you never want those paintings just to be performing what you want them to do. I think there's a risk with curatorial practice that you make the work do what you need it to do. Mm. The work should always be doing what the artist wants it to do. Having said that, what audiences do with works is another thing again. Yeah, yeah. And the the sensation or the feeling that comes from a particular room is something that is relatively changeable. I think in the case of the Rorschach room, you'd be hard-pressed to feel uplifted in that room. I think it's it's a very reflective space and you know, the way people behave in galleries is fascinating. I think your voice modulation would... I think you'd you'd probably bring your voice down if you stepped into that space. I totally agree. So there's something that happens that that renders a certain level of affect or emotional impact. Mm. And and with these spaces, um, you've had to deal with three different galleries Mm. and had to reconfigure the whole thing. And I was saying to you earlier that, you know, I felt like it was a whole new show. A whole other thing. From Adelaide. Yeah. Um, 
What, what does a gallery say to you when you turn up and say, this is the space, go yeah. for it? Well, in the case of the, the two reconfiguring, so the first one obviously I oversaw because it was in Adelaide in my gallery, but with the other two I worked really closely with the two curators. So in Queensland it was Peter McKay and his team and here it's Justin Payton. So I worked closely with those teams because they know those spaces. Mm. And if you're trying to create an experience for a viewer that is emotional as well as intellectual, you can't impose those ideas. The spirit of the, the actual place has to come through the work so to be honest I allowed for their input because the Queensland show had precisely the same works as the Adelaide show and because the spaces were relatively similar you know the idea of a series of interconnecting rooms the show looked quite similar to the way that it did in Adelaide. Having said that, in Adelaide we had the big Vongarad Rorschach outside in another space in the gallery and in Queensland the Irina Ringi painting was brought outside into another space. So yeah. there were some things, a bit I of a push and pull. Also logistically, logistically, the size of the walls. And, that and look, I, I find a show like this relatively easy to hang because you've got these big anchors, you know, you've got those massive paintings mm. and there are absolutely real limitations and the limitations yeah great thing to work with as a curator much better than a blank slate a limitation means that you have to find those anchors you drop those anchors in physically you think about the Rorschach room here for instance that's not a room that would have worked if it was at the beginning or the end of the row because it would have been too porous you really needed to walk you need to walk into that room for it to take effect and then that last room, the way the light kind of, it's almost like the lights are fluorescent because of that wall. You yeah, feel like, yeah. you actually feel like you're being kind of surveilled. Yeah, the yellow, the blue yeah, and yellow. Yeah, so you, yeah. I think, you know, if, you, if you're responding to the space and the work, then you'll, you'll get there. Mm. But no, well, I was happy to be led by those two gentlemen. Yeah, well, I like the position of, the, of last summer's 2017 as mm-hmm. well because that is that, that very large... Yes, over four meters. Yeah, it is. It is, Um, and it is just nuts. Can I say? Because you know who's got a wall that's that tall? Hardly anyone, as it happens. We had to build a wall at the Art Gallery of South Australia to to fit. Oh, did you? Yeah, and one of it was the reason that the play of the structure, you know, the kind of deconstructed structure, worked here. Mm. Because you can't actually hang that painting on a regular wall in the company of other paintings. It does a very odd thing. So it required a little bit of artifice, if you like. It required a bit of theatre. Yeah. So when you say deconstructed wall, it's just like sort of the skeleton of yeah. Before. Yeah, it's like the builders. It's like yeah. the builders put down their tools and left before they put the actual the jiprock on. Yeah, that's right. That's pretty much what it, it looks is. Good. It looks yeah, good. I think it looks I think great. It works really well. And that was also I love what Justin said about that earlier. He said that he wanted the paintings to be treated sculpturally because mm. if you're just dealing with a kind of a white cube and you're popping things on the wall, there's a kind of flattening that happens. But by breaking the cube with those various devices, you're also treating the art differently, and it becomes more sculptural. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Now, since I didn't get much time to talk to Ben yesterday, well, I did get, I got, I was given 45 minutes, so that was great. That's pretty good. <laughs> I know, I was lucky, yeah. I was lucky. Yeah. Um, but there were obviously lots of things I wanted to talk to him about, and, sure. I, and maybe yeah. I can talk to you about it, and obviously feel free not to answer if you feel like you're speaking for him. But um, he's clearly committed to art's capacity to instigate change, and, mm-hmm. and there are many um, issues that are very that he feels about very strongly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to read that he's been described as an unlikely activist. <laughs> what, what do you think about Well, I think that? I use that term. I think that was actually mine. Oh, was it yours? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. And I guess so. I, what I meant, meant by that is that he doesn't look like your average activist. There is something so very 
middle of the road about Ben. You know, I think Richard Flanagan said something beautiful that he looks like he's just stepped off. Maybe this was a journalist, I can't remember. He looks like he's just stepped off the cast of Home and Away. (laughs) You know, he's got something very kind of, um, in some ways, kind of generically Australian male about him. Yeah, that's true. And so he's unlikely in that sense. But I also think unlikely because he'll be the first to tell you that he has had a very kind of middle-class... background like that he you know he's he's white privilege not not at the to highest echelons you know his parents are both incredibly socially and environmentally aware so mm. clearly that's where it's come from that's around right. that back to the dinner table but he's unlikely because he he doesn't he also doesn't preach so there's not a didacticism in his work that mm. is demanding that we jump in his camp i suppose mm. and i i know I, I would have loved to have talked to him more about um, Myron Sukumaran because I think probably for a lot of Australians that's where he really uh, became noticed by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that campaign that he led with others, but uh, he was sort of the face of it to, tra- yeah. to, to overturn the death penalty. He tragically yeah. didn't succeed. But um, The Mercy campaign was a really important moment for him and interestingly... Myron Sukumaran was never his muse. I think people assume that because Ben's a painter that he painted Sukumaran. He only made two paintings of Myron. Mm. He made some drawings, but he only made two paintings and one of them's in the exhibition yeah. because he was he was very much Myron's mentor. That's right. Also, as an active, I mean, there are activists who do say, you know, they, they, they talk the talk, mm. but he actually went in deep with that. Yeah. And, yeah, and but sort as a of, painter to begin with. Like, I think yeah. that's what's quite important. It's the yeah. same with when we talk about Ben's trips to Central Australia. It's really he's being invited by painters, in the case of Sukumaran, a kind of fledgling emerging painter, sending Ben a letter that said, hey, I love your work, interested in giving me a few tips. So it's, it's as a painter, there's nothing kind of... There, there's no conceit there's no Mm. performance Mm. that he's going in under any other term and then what happens when he gets in there because he is a a deep humanist is that he connects with other people's humanity deeply and he becomes an incredibly lucid champion of some of these key concerns of our time Mm. he doesn't go in thinking i'm going to become you know they're not causes he's often been criticized as being an artist who has too many causes he doesn't go in thinking i'm going to make work about this it doesn't work like that no he just goes in seeking a human experience, and yeah. that's what he brings home. It is difficult. I think it's much more difficult for people who are trying to um, help in those ways in these days. With the with um, you know, you're constantly being attacked online or whatever. Not yeah. that he is being, but you, you're more you're I'm more sure exposed he's had more to that. Than he share of that as well. Yeah, it's and, and to keep going is is quite admirable. I think. Yeah, well, you go back to the studio. That's where painting becomes important. You just go back to the studio and work it out. It's, it is very much his kind of saviour. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing I'm wondering about is that um, even though you've done exhibitions mm-hmm. with Ben before, why, why now do a survey show, like a mid-career survey show? It's a really good question and it's one that's been put to me many, many times and it's one that I've deeply considered. It's quite unusual to have such a long-standing relationship with a particular artist and I have curated shows by many, many, many other artists. So it's it's not that we he I'm his only curator and he's the only artist I've worked with. But ten years ago I did a show for the University of Queensland Art Museum and that exhibition travelled to Tarawara in the Yarra Valley in Victoria and 
the, the response was pretty incredible. At that point, Ben had had, you know, probably a 10-year career, I suppose, and it was an exhibition that corroborated or, or really underscored how much the audience respond to his work. But I think Ben Quilty has had a decade the time from that exhibition to this exhibition, like a few other people. Yeah, I agree. During that time, he has been to Afghanistan. During that time, he met Myron Sukumaran. During that time, he travelled with World Vision and Richard Flanagan to the Middle East. During that time, he's become a father. So he, one of his children was born just before the last show, but he's, he's become a father. Uh, he has become quite an extraordinary advocate, I would say, for artists and artists' rights. So all of that has happened within the arc of a single decade, and his work reflects that arc. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just that all these things are happening in his life, let's make a show. It's like all of these things are actually captured in that decade of painting. So the exhibition itself traverses about 15 years. So the earliest, there's an early Tirana from, I think it's about 2002, 2003, and then there's the wonderful double portrait of the Badrigar and Albert Namajira, which quotes on the Dagi, which is from about 2004. So, you know, you've got a 15, 16, 17-year kind of practice through the show. But the exhibition absolutely focuses on the last 10 years. So Mm -hmm. much has happened in that time. Well, on that point, how do you cull? Yeah, good question. I mean, there must have been so many works to consider. Yeah, I could have done that show 50 times over. Yeah. I mean, it's, and for people, you know, a whole lot of people have said, I've got this painting, what about this? And it doesn't mean they don't have great work. It just means that these were the works that were needed to tell the story. And there are a couple of things that help us help to guide that process. The self-portrait is in a private collection in Sydney. And from the moment I saw that self-portrait, I was struck by it. Mm -hmm. And it stood to me as the touchstone for the whole show. The kind of sense of horror and anxiety that's expressed in Ben's own face. Ben's face has become quite recognisable as well, as you would know. Mm -hmm. So there was a sense to which we were kind of playing with that idea hey, hang on a minute, so if somebody walked past a bus shelter and they saw that the image of that painting, they'd go, that's familiar. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure, even, you know, I, and yeah. I'm not talking about art lovers here, I'm talking about the general public mm. who are perhaps not as much into art. It's so after Afghanistan. Yeah, 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 yeah the self-portrait after Afghanistan. They'd kind of stop in their tracks and go, he looks familiar. Yeah, yeah. So as a curator, you want to use that, like that's actually quite a powerful thread, quite a powerful vehicle. So some portraits, some, sorry, some paintings get themselves on the list. It's not a big painting. Uh, there have been lots of self-portraits across Ben's career, but that was the one mm. because it had sufficient resemblance to Ben and yet sufficient emotional kind of quantum that it really spoke yeah. to what we needed to do. Yeah. And it's on a wall on its own here, which All is great. On its own. Great. And then there are works like the major raw sharks, and I think if there's a particular chapter in Ben's work that I've been interested in, it's the Raw Shark paintings because of the way that they remake themselves as these history paintings. Mm. And I'm very interested in our history. So I, they had to be in it. And then, of course, those Raw Shark paintings are held, some of them are held, the physical nature of those Raw Sharks means that, with one exception, they're held in public collections. And it's fantastic to show public collections from other places. Yeah. So there's one from the Art Gallery of New South Wales. There's two from the Art Gallery of South Australia. There's one from Tarawara that we mentioned before that's the wonderful Vongarad painting yeah so it's an opportunity to show these works that are held in other collections that may not have been seen or may not have been seen in their company it kind of brings them back Mm. 
It's like putting a family member back in place, if that makes sense, mm. like a family reunion. Mm. Well, I think it's an exhibition that um, will probably draw international attention and I think probably my listeners from overseas, you should be coming to Australia. <laughs> if you haven't been yet, this is when you should be here because, I mean, that is a reason to come to Sydney. Yeah. Um, well, Lisa, thank you so much for your thank time you today so and for insights and congrats on your fabulous podcast. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lisa Slade. It was a real pleasure to meet her. Also, those of you following on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter will have noticed that a lot of my previous guests have had exhibitions opening in Sydney in the last few weeks. So if you go to social media, you'll see some short video interviews with them. And of course, there are many more interviews on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel. There's over 100, mostly of the artists talking in their studios. And the latest one is with Catherine Longhurst. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast, the best thing you can do is spread the word. And one of the best ways of doing that, apart from telling a friend about it, is leaving a rating and review on iTunes. So thanks to everybody who has done that already. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. What I think we sometimes forget as curators and as audience members is that you don't artists never see a life's work like that no that's right so can you imagine seeing yeah every all these things that you've made over this time and as you identified it's you know it's not it's only just a small percentage but imagine seeing them all come together and seeing conversations happen between them that have never happened because they've never been made in the same time and space